Hi everyone and welcome to Pod Academy. This is the second lecture in a series organised by the IF Project, London's Free University, with the overall title of Thinking Between the Lines, Truth, Lies and Fiction in an Age of Populism. The lecturer is Dr Katie de Cunha-Lewin and her title is Making Things Up. As you'll hear, she takes a forensic look at invention and reality in writing by women. This, this lecture has a kind of aspect to it, which is really a sort of signalling of my moving into a sort of less male-centric uh, lit- literary world. Um, for my PhD, it was very dude-heavy. Uh, I was like, what's the canon? That's where I live. You know, like I was in, I, you know, I, that was what I thought good literature was. It was really the, the idea of what is the kind of established male canon. And I think for me in my, in my postdoc work and in my subsequent work, I'm trying to sort of think of ways that I can approach that assumption in myself and also in my teaching, um, giving space to a kind of much more diverse range of people um, to write about and think about. So that's kind of some of the context for this. And another part of the context is really thinking about, you know, what we're going to be, what's the kind of broad theme of this course, which is about this idea of truth, fiction, and of populism. Um, but what I wanted to think about today is, is very much based in up to the moment contemporary literature. So what's happening at the moment in, in literature from the last few years and what it can tell us about some of these issues that are happening kind of around us more broadly. So, I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to imagine anything. It's in the living room with me. The quote above from Sheila Hetty, a Canadian writer whose recent work, Motherhood, from 2018, dealt with the many questions that underpin the idea of mothering and child-rearing, helps us think about the central idea of this lecture. What does it mean to make things up in literature? Who is allowed to make things up in literature? And what happens if a writer avoids doing this altogether? So in my argument for this lecture, I want to unpack some of these questions, but I also want to suggest something about the implicit politics that there are behind making things up. Um, And so kind of my broad idea is that I want to give us as many talking points as possible for our seminar on Thursday. So I am going to kind of touch on quite a few things in uh, the next little while. Um, but really what I want to do is generate enough for you to, to kind of come with lots of different ideas. So there might be something in particular, one route that I go down that you're like, oh yeah, that actually really interests me. So kind of, if that's something that you, you want to then talk about, please feel free to, you know, say, oh yeah, that bit in your lecture where you said X, Y, Z thing, I was really interested in that. So just kind of use this as a sort of resource to kind of be pulling things from. So the lecture will be split into two broad sections. So in the first, I'll be talking about writing and its relationship to life. Uh, that is writing and its idea of our rela- and its sorry uh, our idea of its relation to truth. In the second section, I want to discuss the relationship between writing, invention, and reality in contemporary writing by women. I want to think about how this relation to truth changes according to who is doing the writing and importantly, how that truth is perceived by the wider reading public. In this, we find lots of issues to do with authority, agency, and labor, but there is also a wider, wider question about why we want our fiction to be made up and what it is that our fiction should, should look like or does look like. What are the demands that we make of fiction? And also, this is, I, I, I kind of touched on this a little bit, but this might be something we want to talk about again in the seminar looking ahead, perhaps to the not-so-distant future, about technology, social media, and its effect also on our truth, or what that notion of a truth might be, a true self, perhaps. So, um, as I said, this is kind of coming from my own research and kind of a a sort of move that I'm making in my own research, um, and a paper that I recently submitted to a journal on the idea of genius um, and who is allowed to be a genius. Um, and I have really no interest in this idea of genius. I'm not a really big fan of it in any way. 
But I think that the way that it is used is super, super interesting, particularly in reviews or in exhibitions. So, you know, we have uh, the, new ex- the new William Blake exhibition, you know, Blake the Genius or Matisse the Genius or Van Gogh, whatever, the Genius. So I think much of what comes to define the genius is that we know what the genius looks like and, broadly speaking, the kinds of places that they'll be in. So they either look like the picture on the left or they look like the picture on the right. So the first image, people know the image, like Casper, Casper Friedrich painting. Uh, The first image shows us the isolated romantic hero surveying the land and looking out the contrasts and beauties of nature, isolated in the wild landscape, uh, kind of beyond human reckoning in some way, trying to consider themselves in relation to that world. And in the other, we have the idealized image of solitude, the man alone in his room. So this is Arthur Conan Doyle um, at his writing desk. Thinking deeply and engaging with the world from within his own domain. Um, and particularly in the second image, the, this, this solitary genius is defined by the space in which he lives. So this might sound obvious, but it's actually really, really worth unpacking more. So this, this space, the writing room, is quiet, is perhaps owned by them in some capacity, um, either, either rented or owned, um, out of the way enough to allow them to work undisturbed, and that notion of undisturbed I'll come back to you later and often full of particular possessions. So, you know, we can see the books, we can see uh, painting, we can see, you know, the kind of, uh, the, the, the tools, the writing tools, comfy chairs, writing equipment, and then that desk. And so I think this is a, this is a, a key problem, really, if we're thinking about authority and writing who it is that we're thinking is doing the writing, who it is that we think lies behind that writing that we get. And, and perhaps, you know, the, the, in the left image, I might be being a little, uh, you know, slightly sarcastic. We maybe not, don't really expect our writers to be going away and kind of journeying in quite the same way. But certainly the writing room image is still a kind of enduring cultural image that, you know, the writer sits alone creating you know, brooding, really, really thinking deeply. So I'll be looking at some, uh, a kind of, I'll be talking about some novels, um, but I'm also going to be talking um, and looking at some extracts from interviews and reviews. And in this way, we can see not only what women are writing about, but also the reception of that work. I'm just going to close this. all of the keys in the whole world. Um, So in in this reception, we see that this is how the lines of culture are drawn, basically. It is not only that through readers that writers make their fate, but also through tastemakers. So all of this kind of other cultural stuff, those who facilitate the production of culture such as publishers, editors, cultural critics, magazine editors, radio programs, etc., etc. So, you know, if you get on Radio 4, if you get on Book of the Week, if you get on Richard and Judy, you know, all of these kinds of things. These are all part and parcel about the way that we receive this book. And I think it's important to remember that by the time a book has got to us, that it has gone through many hands already. So, and then once it is out into the world... It's then further sorted, assigned a genre, a place on a particular bookshelf, um, and the sort of reader that it goes to, the sort of home that it finds itself in. So there's many, many different stages that we're talking about here, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that we can't really uh, we can't really imagine that we're getting the book kind of in any in a sort of neutral, pure way anymore. It's it's mediated through various channels. And so in today's world of publication, which we mustn't forget is also a business, that there are certain trends and certain styles of writing which are of interest. So in the book uh, book industry, we now have an interesting tension between writing that dubs itself um, autofiction, or kind of memoir writing, kind of hybrid writing, and the people who stand to make money from that. 
So this is another problem that underscores what I'm talking about here, between what lives matter to read about in fiction, who can make things up, and then also who is willing to publish and disseminate that work. So again, we have these kinds of layers and layers of complexity in what we're talking about. So we can't, we can't really pretend that writing is produced with this direct, direct link from the writer to the reader in any kind of unfettered way. It makes its way to us through channels that obfuscate themselves. And so if you've been taught by me before, you'll know that one of my hatred is things that are seem kind of natural or normal. If we're like, oh yeah, of course, that's just how it is. But of course, how something is has, has become that way. It's not just a given that it is that way. And I think the idea of fiction is something that the journey of fiction is also something that needs to be thought of in that way. How do we get to these books? How do we read these books? How have these books made their way through these various channels? So, in my first section, I want to tease out some of these central problems of writing and reality or writing and truth and to think about the way that some writers have considered this problem. So I have some questions here which I think might be quite good ones for our seminar, um, and they are deliberately absolutely enormous questions. Um, so uh, maybe these might be some that you want to go away and kind of consider. Um, so I'll just read through them. I'm not necessarily going to ask you for the answers, but maybe this, you can consider them. So what does fiction writing have to do with life is my first question. Is a novel a document? Is my second question. Is any writing a document? Can fiction represent life? What does it mean for writing to be representative? And the sixth question is a quote. Where are we when we write? So this is a quote from J.M. Kitsaya talking about the work of Samuel Beckett. So, a lot of, a lot of difficult questions here. And I think it's probably obvious to say that fiction has tried to deal with some of these problems for a long time. Regardless of the genre in which someone may work, the idea of the truth of reading comes in many forms and in many guises. It may be true, it may be that truth, sorry, comes to us as uh, the way that the text makes itself recognisable to the world that we live in. So recognition. It may come to us as a truthful idea that somehow kind of resonates with, with all of us in some form of another. The universalizing, we could say, of human experience. It may also that it be it may also be that it simply recounts true stories. So kind of something historical, something a political event, or it's engaging with things we know to be true. So we can think about that in some way as representation. So this is not an exhaustive way that it can interact, but this is sort of me, me thinking about, okay, well, how some ways, how, how, do, we, how do we think about the, some of the ways we're getting truth in fiction? And maybe these, maybe these are parts of it. Uh, but I think there's also another question here about our relation to an expectation of fiction, as if fiction owes us certain kinds of experiences, thoughts, or after-effects. So this is perhaps a kind of interesting question and maybe one I think that's often used when people are like, well, what's the point of fiction? Why do we have fiction? Is, is it, well, I don't read fiction. It's not true. Well, what are we, what are we asking of fiction? What kind, how do we want to feel? What do we want to know? What, how, what is it supposed to do after we read the book? And so, in, in kind of thinking about some of those, those messy problems, uh, I, I want to now think about the work of a writer that I'm sure some of you are familiar with, George Eliot. People know George Eliot. So, you know, a kind of classic stalwart of the Victorian realist novel. And often, I think, realism is where we... we get a lot of our ideas, or the Victorian realist novels where we get a lot of our ideas from about what fiction should do. So we think of it, its truthfulness is probably in its effective possibility, so in the way that it makes us feel. 
in the, the kind of narrative that it gives us. And so George Eliot has written a lot about this kind of thing. All of her mm. books are, are very interested, I think, in, in reality, in thinking about how to depict reality. And so um, I'll just read the, the first quote. So this is from her novel, Adam Bede. With a single drop of ink for a mirror, the Egyptian sorcerer undertakes to reveal to any chance comer far-reaching visions of the past. This is what I undertake to do for you, reader. With this drop of ink at the end of my pen, I will show you the roomy workshop of Mr. Jonathan Burge, carpenter and builder in the village of Hayslope, as it appeared on the 18th of June in the year of our Lord, 1799. So in this opening gambit, Eliot talks of pens, of ink, of writing, and of history. But she also talks about sorcery and rituals. Though the relationship between her and her writing is presented in a fairly straightforward way in the second sentence, the first sentence in its vision sits in rather strange contrast, I think. Eliot sets out not only the world... So in that, that last bit, the world of Mr. Jonathan Burge, um, but also her relationship to it. So she, she will conjure, like the sorcerer she mentions, the far-reaching vision of the past. She names the reader, so she names that direct relationship to whom the image is directed, and she names the specifics of what she's depicting. So she's saying, you know, this guy in this moment, in this place, in this time, I'm going to show you this and her pen and ink are her tools. The second sentence then seems to be aiming to ground it in a, in a specific reality, but in the opening sentence, uh, it it's kind of renders the reader in a strange place, outside also of Eliot's immediate moment, through a ritual that calls for us to see far-reaching visions of the past. So she's kind of telling us two sort of separate things here, really, in a quite slippery way. Does she want to reveal a vision... Or does she show us reality? So it's that interesting tension there. Is it the sorcery or is it the reality? So I think she's kind of playing a trick. It's kind of a trick. Fiction is a trick. The second quote that I have is from D.H. Lawrence, uh, from an essay that he wrote called Why the Novel Matters. And he sought to right of the importance of the novel, obviously, from the title of this essay. Um, and actually, interestingly, he chooses the same objects, um, the pen, uh, but rather than the ink, necessarily, he's thinking about the pen in the hand. So he says, My hand, as it writes these words, slips gaily along, jumps like a grasshopper to dot an eye, feels the table rather cold, gets a little bored if I write too long, has its own rudiments of thought, and is just as much me as is my brain, my mind, or my soul. What should I imagine that there is a me which is more me than my hand is, since my hand is absolutely alive, me alive? Whereas, of course, as far as I'm concerned, my pen isn't alive at all. My pen isn't me alive. My, me alive ends at my fingertips. So Lawrence dwells on the image of the writing hand, this feverishly alive image as it darts about and slips gaily along and generally lives. But the life stops short at the pen. The pen is distinctly not alive. It records the vivacious life that fills the hand, but it is not itself life. And so later he, he gives us a quote which I think is very useful. He says, The novel is the one bright book of life. Books are not life. They are only tremulations on the ether. But the novel as a tremulation can make the whole man alive tremble, which is more than poetry, philosophy, science, or any other book tremulation can do. So he's making big claims here for the novel, for writing. He's asserting the highest status of the writer over all other disciplines because they can see the wholeness which other disciplines just cannot and in books being the bright book of life, but not life itself, Lawrence makes a careful distinction in the relationship between the composer and what is composed. 
it is a tremulation on the ether. So it's a kind of wave that communicates. But as he says, books are not life. They cannot be made into a replica of life. They are an illuminated version of life. So Elliot and Lawrence here, I think, are doing something very interesting about the promise of reality, the promise of showing life in some way in the, in the book. Because I think both of them are saying that this is a kind of reflection or it's a kind of conjuring trick. There's some sort of transformation that's occurring that's very difficult to necessarily say from kind of A to B. There's, this is happening and then this is happening in, in the text. But there's some kind of transformation that goes across. And I think that's really, really important. And I think another thing that's interesting in this essay, if you want to go um, and go away and read it, this D.H. Lawrence essay, uh, Why the Novel Matters, it's only short. You can find it fairly easily online. Um, but actually throughout, he's, he talks about his experience of writing the book, bringing it back to himself. So, you know, he's saying, my hand, my pen, me. He's very present in that role of the writer. And so I think this... this this makes it kind of a little bit more complicated because it means that, you know, often we're, we're thinking of that writer as the sort of boundary between the world and the text that's produced. And, but it's also another question of authority. So the fact that Lawrence claims himself as that writer, he claims himself as the, the person doing the writing, living the life and then representing the life. Which is, a, which is a powerful thing to do, actually. It might be something we sort of assume of a particular form of the novel, but actually, in what I'm going to talk about now, it's, it's important. That authority, that staking of authority is important. And so there's kind of... I, I've talked a little bit about realist uh, literature, and then we have kind of moving into Lawrence's more modernist writing. And... and just want to, I'm not going to give you sort of a, I'm giving you extraordinarily potted history of literature here, but I wanted to say a little bit about what happened really at the beginning of the 20th century in terms of maybe this kind of writerly authority. Um, and we, we see that it kind of starts to not function quite in the same way as it had done in earlier novels, although already, as I've shown you, it's not such an easy thing in the example of George Eliot. The kind of assertive I maybe that Lawrence kind of feels pretty much he can still stake a claim to, starts to become a little trickier as events such as World War I and World War II have a profound impact on the idea of subjectivity and as psychology and psychoanalysis give us new insights into the, the mind and the position of the subject. And so very easy examples of this. We can think of Franz Kafka and Samuel Beckett as being writers that show the kind of extraordinary possibility that lies behind an eye, the speaking subject, who no longer knows how it is that they can speak or if they can speak at all. And then this kind of... Moving along now to the 60s. In 67... This idea of authority, or indeed the lack of it, was taken a step further through one of the most important writers of the second half of the 20th century. I'm sure maybe some of you know who I uh, will know the name, um, Roland Barthes, who wrote uh, lots of influential works about semiotics, about mythology, um, but probably nothing as influential as his essay, The Death of the Author. Uh, have people heard of this work? Yes? If you've kind of studied literature, maybe... I mean, you have, it's, it's impossible really for you to not come across it. And in this famous work, Bart maintained that the death of the author gives birth to the reader, meaning that the authority of the author to be able to determine the meaning of his work, and I say his deliberately, uh, was no longer feasible. So he basically said, you sort of kill off the author of the text as the one who determines what a book is about, and it's fair game to all of us, basically. So it's giving birth to the, to the reader. Um, and so in, instead of, you know, he, he's essentially promoting a new form of readership or a new form of critical relation to texts. One that no longer had to believe in the direct relationship between the writer and the author. So, you know, the pen, the ink and the pen and the hand. 
but there's a new kind of a new sort of openness. So we, this is kind of a key text of postmodernism, basically. But in in Bach claiming the death of the author, he was really not doing anything to the history of the canon, which was determined by a very particular set of writers, viewpoints, and languages. So in fact, actually, as one um, critic, Marjorie Perloff, has noted, um, and going back to the, the idea of genius that I spoke about, in some ways, basically, he's reaffirming the idea of the canon, because in the death of the author, he's not saying all that stuff that came before is rubbish. He's saying we can just get, we don't have to think about the author in the same way. He's saying they can be studied in new ways, actually. So in some ways, sort of, it, it, gives, it gives writers and critics sort of free reign to go, ah, actually, I can look at Proust in a new way. I can look at, Je- you know, Joyce in a new way. So it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of strange because he, he sort of opened up their possibility, and this is at the moment uh, kind of concurrent with the rise of reader response theory, um, which was specifically looking at the reader as a new area of study. So actually, in giving birth to the reader when he's talking about that, he also means literally in that now actually we can study effective response, so how people respond to literature. But he's also kind of minimising the importance of authority, which I think actually is, is, is still a really key idea. And so actually at this point I wanted to kind of draw us back a little bit to what Will Davies said in his lecture about knowledge in terms of what we want it to do um, and kind of how we want it to operate. Uh, and so as he was talking, I was really thinking about, well, what, what is it that we're actually asking for, for knowledge to illuminate now? What is it that we want to know more about now in contemporary culture? Is that even, you know, what, what does it mean for us to be curious um, about knowing about things that we've, we've never explored before, new areas. D- what does this do to our sense of, of opening up? And also, where should it be going? And I think that's really key too, if we're thinking about the lines of culture that are drawn. You know, where is that line? Of Where are the limitations of that knowledge? And I think actually this, this becomes a question of the aim of writing or the kind of any kind of lofty or high aims or ambitions of writing writing is metaphysical it exists on another plane it's escapist in some way but it's sort of if we have these ideas that that writing the kinds of knowledge it has to produce are very lofty existentialist you know whatever very far away from our immediate experience it means that you know reading about process of chopping a tomato or traveling to work on the tube or buying toothpaste uh, then you're never going to get any lofty ideas from there it's like saying okay well art's up here but in the boring stuff that we do day to day there's no way that that is ever going to show us anything interesting Mm. and I think this is this is part of the problem that we often come down to with the truth of fiction I think is that the truths that we wanted to show us are sort of these enormous, giant, perhaps existential ones, when actually there may be something around us that can reveal things in, in ways that we've never seen before, that actually maybe there is something very profound in chopping a tomato. I mean, I don't know, but maybe there is. Um, and I think it's, we, we're kind of continuing to demarcate the differences between where, where art is and where, aren't, where art isn't, or different areas of our life that are art, and different areas that are not. So, now I'm going to come on to the second half. So I've called it the self-regarding woman. And I think this is partly because of the sorts of, uh, I guess, for want of a better word, kind of uh, insults that are said to women who write about that things like chopping a tomato, changing a baby's nappy, or, you know, anything to do with sort of intimate life, is that they are self-regarding. Um, that it is the kind of question of narcissism. Uh, and so 
this, this kind of second bit of my lecture, I want to think more explicitly about the idea of women and the way that writing truth becomes a lot trickier in a world that privileges certain experiences over others. So in my argument, also, it's, it's, I, I want to make it clear that I'm not pitching men and women's writing necessarily against each other. And actually, I hate even the fact that we even have to call it women's writing is another whole problem. But um, I don't really want to do it in this kind of oppositional thing. That's not necessarily what I'm trying to do. But there are, there are times when it will be more likely to be read in certain ways if it is written by a woman. So that's just kind of my caveat. Um, and that there are tendencies towards uh, this kind of gendered reading of particular styles and content choices of in the work of women rather than men. And I'll show you a specific example of this in a moment. But to return to Sheila Hetty, uh, so again, this is from the same, it's from an interview in the FT. So she's talking about Elena Ferrenti. Do people know Elena Ferrenti? She did the Neapolitan trilogies which are kind of a big sensation in the last few years, big publishing sensation, and which are also supposed to be considered kind of an autofictional work or are very close in her own life. Of course, Elena Ferrenti is a pseudonym, so uh, she, we don't know exactly who she is, although uh, a man did out her. Uh, he like found, he went uh, and did a lot of digging and found her financial records and worked out who she was. So that's very interesting <laughs> about why he felt the need to do that. Um, but anyway, Sheila Hetty, I think, asked the really interesting... She, she's asked a question about, is, is writing about yourself narcissistic, basically? And she says, I once interviewed Elena Ferrenti and asked her about the, that narcissistic question. And her answer, I can't remember it verbatim, but was that women have always been surveyed by their husbands and their fathers and their brothers and the beginning of being an independent woman is to surveil yourself and I just love that you can call that narcissistic if you want but it just seems like it's a way of preventing women from thinking about their own lives and so in Sheila Hetty's eyes this surveying culture uh, that women are um, women experience um, from all manner of uh, places has had a remarkable effect in the way that we see ourselves. Hardly a surprise, probably, to any of us listening to that. Um, but actually, that's kind of she's talking about turning it back on yourself. Um, and that though there may be something too close to this, too icky to this, it may help women to develop another sense of agency uh, and uh, about their own control, essentially. Now, I think this, this, is, this sounds very simple in the way that she puts it, but I actually think that this is an extraordinarily you know, difficult and fundamentally challenging thing to do. I don't really think anyone would want to see themselves in such a kind of close, surveilled way to turn that penetrative gaze of misogyny onto oneself um, is an extraordinary ask of any kind of fiction. But I think it's an important starting point for any discussion about the gendering of truth because it means that the truth that we are being told is from a definitive, one particular kind of perspective. So perhaps this gaze, by turning it back on ourselves, is, it reveals this process to us. So I now uh, want to talk a little bit about the genre of fiction that uh, might fit into what Hetty is talking about. And as I mentioned earlier, is sort of a sort of a trendy publishing term nowadays. Um, and a, contem a contemporary trend, um, autofiction. Uh, and I, I have to say, I don't really know what I think about this trend. I don't know if it exists. I don't know if we can necessarily see it as a distinct category. But I think it's the existence of the word is interesting. Why we have this, why suddenly people are really flocking to the term autofiction, I think uh, is important. Um, and so the basic three, oh, sorry, that's quite small, isn't it? I'll read it out to you so you can hear. The basic kind of three uh, ideas that mean that a book fulfills this is that it, the main character shares the same name as the author, or sometimes the same initials, or maybe a variation on that name. That uh, it's roughly mappable onto the author's life. So, you know, the author has four kids and the person in the book has four kids. The author is a writer. Oftentimes, both 
that the character will be a writer. They're always going to normally be a writer in autofiction. Uh, and that it's written in, written in a very strong eye. So it's written from a very strong subjective perspective. Uh, essentially, we, we, we can kind of think of it as a thinly veiled version of the author. This is kind of what's the way people always describe it in reviews. Thinly veiled is the term that they use. And there's lots of examples of this. I don't know if any are coming to your mind um, in this, through this category, but a famous one kind of seen sometimes as the sort of foundational text for this is Chris Krause's book, I Love Dick, from 1997. Claudia Rankin, who we studied, if you were here last year with me, we studied last year. Um, she's got two books, Don't Let Me Be Lonely and Citizen, uh, which are both kind of seen as, as autofictional in some way. Um, Siri Hustved, uh, she had a novel uh, from this year called Memories of the Future, which is, the character is called, uh, it has the same initials, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's lots and lots of them in recent years. If you search, if you Google autofiction, you'll get, you'll get loads and loads of hits. Um, and that, that's really just, obviously, a select few. And it's very interesting to note that this is often, it's seemingly favoured by women. It's a category that is seemingly favoured by women. But, and this is my kind of caveat, a certain kind of normally privileged middle-class white woman. So that's also another kind of element here, which I probably won't get to talk about. We can talk about maybe in our seminars. Now, why? Why is it that women want to do this? Why do we want to write in a way that fictionalises life or contains kind of details that announce life. And critic Alex Clark, who's got quite a good essay on this in The Guardian, she, she kind of tries to think a bit about this. And she, her kind of answer is, is very much to do with the contemporary moment. So she says, in the perpetual present of social media, when personal presentation um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter is everything... These autofictions offer an alternative, experimental narrat uh, narrative of self. They are attempts to reshape and repurpose a literary form, and their sudden popularity speaks to the idea uh, that to capture 21st century experience, writers mu must breach borders, blend fiction, memoir, history, poetry, the visual and performing arts. And I think I want to come back to this idea, because I don't necessarily know if I agree with her, um, but before I do that, I want to look at a case study about why women might want to write in this way um, through kind of thinking about, through thinking about um, two authors, um, a man and a woman, and kind of comparing the responses to their work, which was read to be, which were kind of memoirs come novels, um, this the the two the two books by the woman were sort of before this term autofiction was kind of used as as, as uh, so often so they're not technically that but now we probably consider them that um, so Canadian writer Rachel Cusk and Norwegian writer Carl of Knausgård do people either of you know the names yeah um, so this really does give an insight into the perils and pitfalls of life writing for women in comparison to men. Uh, so, brace yourselves. Um, so, both authors have written books which document their life looking after children, the mundanity of domestic life, and then subsequently the documented their divorce also. So, Knausgaard's book, My Struggle, have people heard of that? It's kind of, so, it's a six-part six book that just, just finished uh, this year, I think. It essentially tries to document absolutely everything that's ever happened to him. In, my, in as minute detail as possible. Um, and it's called My Struggle, and I'm sure some of you recognise the title, which is taken from Hitler's book uh, Mein Kampf. It's the same thing in Norwegian. Um, and he writes about Hitler, he writes about um, Andres Breivik. Uh, you know, he, he, he's sort of like the, the idea of controversial, you know, subject matter, he kind of seems to court in some ways. Um, and Cusk's, uh, Rachel Cusk's book, A, Life work, A Life's Work, documents the birth of her two, so her pregnancy and the birth of two children, uh, her two daughters who were born 
I think, 15 months apart. So she was pregnant in very quick succession and she writes about that experience. And then Aftermath, which is the disintegration of her marriage to um, her children's father. And, and actually, this label of... Her books were also labelled controversial. She didn't name it, she, you know, it's not called... She didn't also call it My Struggle. She doesn't talk about Hitler, as far as I understand it. But she, she talks... Her books are called controversial. Um, but for very different reasons. Um, and the critical responses to these texts... So I'm taking these from reviews that I'm going to be looking at now... Um, are really extraordinary. Um, and they really tell us a lot about what I've already been really discussing, um, ideas of, um, you know, what art should do, authority, what kinds of labour we value, all this kind of thing. And some of them are really staggering. So I'm not going to dwell too long in it, but I'll just take us first to some, uh, some reviews. This is from Canals Guard. And I've sort of spread them out. I tried to go mostly on his first books, but the top one is on his last. So um, in the top one, uh, Michael Faber, writing for The Guardian, says, virtually every character who appears in uh, Min Camp has been interviewed by the Norwegian press. So every single person who's in the book has been interviewed, and everyone's asked, is this true? So that's a very interesting response. In Norway, apparently, like, we'll probably, we probably never get a sense of just what uh, kind of sensation it was. And... Everyone has was interviewed and asked, was this true? Is this true? For Cusk, in one of her books, she wrote something that was so similar to an experience that she had that she was sued by people who recognised themselves from the book. I don't think anyone sued um, Knausgaard. I don't know. Maybe they have. I don't know. But anyway, Rachel Cusk was sued for her representations of, uh, of, uh, of a couple, which I think is interesting. Um, but there are some other ones... Um, uh, some kind of more flowery, uh, rapturous reviews. So, uh, Sean Hewitt writing for the Irish Times, there remains something compelling in its overflowing, frustrating, unbound narrative. This is a book to argue with, to throw across the room in fatigue, to find tender and bruised and unwittingly a book to take back and to go on with regardless. And then Dwight Garner in the New York Times. I fell into the first two books of my struggle as if I were falling into a malarial fever. I did, this really makes me feel very, like, oh, God, like, review writing can be so bad. I did little else for four days except devour them, leaving email unanswered. How awful. Dogs unwalked, dishes piling up in the sink. The steady headlamps of his prose stun and mesmerise you as if you were lum a lumbering mammal caught in the middle of a highway. Um, so, you know, this is, this is really a Proustian, Joycean, staggering project that this person has done. You know, Knausgaard is 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 a is a absolutely incredible guy to have come up with this, and I, I'm being I'm being obviously kind of glib here when I say this because there are also lots of reviews where people are like I don't think I get it or you know he seems quite annoying or I'm not really sure like this one's good but this the other like four aren't or whatever so you know I, I'm being selective here but these kinds of really really over the top praise is not something that Cusk met in the, after, in the reception of her work. So, in these comparisons... So, this is... I, I've chosen uh, one from Camilla Long, who's, who's sort of a kind of... Well, she, she, she writes sometimes uh, these sort of really attacking reviews, and this is one of them that she wrote about Rachel Cusk. Um, so, so it's on uh, the book Aftermath, but actually it's also, it's also um, considering the details of her first book too. Uh, 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 the, the, sorry, the other work, the, uh, life's work. Um, so Camilla Long wrote of Rachel Cusk, Cusk herself seems extraordinary, a brittle little dominatrix and peerless narcissist who exploits her husband and her marriage with relish. She tramples anyone close to her, especially Clark, her husband, whom she has forced to give up his job in order to look after the kids. She pours scorn on his dependence and unwaged domesticity, but won't do chores herself because they make her feel of all things unsexed. She is horrified when he demands half of everything in the divorce. They're my children, she snarls. Belong to, they belong to me. She can't remember what drove me to destroy the life I had or even explain why she wrote the book. This is a pity, as confessional writing is meant to be about truth, the whole truth. 
And then the second review is from Francis Stoner Saunders in The Guardian, who I, really, I normally really like. And actually, this review is not very mean, but it's an interesting way she characterises it. So, indeed, Cuss' story is so important to her that she has created out of it a whole landscape, Cuskland, whose contours and features she has been mapping since her first memoir, a life's work about how her pregnancy and motherhood stole her identity. So, in the, uh, after um, a life's work came out, basically every insult that Rachel Cuss could have had was chucked at her. So she was a terrible mother, she was a terrible wife, she was a terrible human, she was a terrible woman. And she actually wrote a response in The Guardian, which is really, really interesting. Um, and actually, I think I'd like to look at an extract from in our seminars, um, in which she, she outlines that criticism that she receives. And so I think what we can see here is, is that idea of what I was lining up earlier of the policing of what kinds of knowledge it is that we want and where we want our art to take us. So we can possibly define this as a tendency to describe women giving intimate details of their life as a form of oversharing. So this is a, a kind of slang term maybe that was used in the 90s or whatever, or like early 2000s, or that's an overshare. But actually a critic, Rachel Sykes, um, has done some really interesting research on this term um, and has used it in relation to the way that it's, it's has, has looked at it in the way that it's used to define work by women writers that are seen to be basically like they're giving too many details. So she notes, when we consider that oversharing is the disclosure of personal information uh, uh, in a given context, it further emerges as a term loaded against women who do not set the cultural context in which others share, receive, and judge their disclosures. In an extensive analysis of just one article on oversharing, so she tracks the kind of hundreds of articles there were written about oversharing and talking about how terrible it is that women can't stop talking about whatever. Um, in in uh, just one article, Jessica Butler suggests that criticisms of oversharing tend to centre on quote, traditionally female realms, children, food, cooking, the body, etc., in a manner that upholds conservative ideals of femininity and dis disallows discussion of these arenas by suggesting that they are trivial and inconsequential. So essentially, the kind of takeaway from this is to write about oneself as a woman is deeply embarrassing, revealing, trivial, and above all, narcissistic. And I think underneath this is a question of labour, is a question of what kinds of labour are behind fiction writing and actually what, what kinds of labour we even want to read about. And this goes back, I think, to the image that I showed you at the beginning. So the guy on the right. So in this image, there are no children there are no cookbooks, there are no piles of laundry, there's just that man on his own. But behind the solitary man lies many uh, people allowing him that privilege. So to finish. Autofiction is about the need to tell and disclose. And actually, we wouldn't know if the book was based in the author's, uh, on the author's real life unless we had the kind of machinery that goes around the publication of books, unless we had the, you know, the publication info, unless we had the author's picture, author's bio, interviews, reviews, Wikipedia. You, know, and if you, can, you, can just, you can just put their information into Google and say, oh, it's the same. What they wrote about, that's the same thing. And so Elena Ferrenti, as I said earlier, has largely escaped this fact-finding mission because she refused, until she was, as I said, she, until she was outed, to name herself or to give really any details about her life through this use of a pseudonym. But on the other hand, a writer, Olivia Lang, have people heard of her? She wrote a book called Crudo. Um, and I'm, I'm no, no, no fan of Olivia Lang's, but she kind of had a, a, the opposite problem because she was extremely visible and present on social media, um, because essentially she was so visible that everyone could know who her husband was that she's talking about in the, in the book Crudo, you know, what flowers she liked and where she was going on holiday. So, you know, you could find out all of that information by just looking at her Instagram. And so this seems to be another problem here about technology, about social media and the compulsion to give truths about ourselves. 
So uh, Rachel Sykes again to return to her. She sees this problem of the overshare of, of coming from the internet and she says, quote, oversharing has also become a shorthand for a kind of narcissism and moral decay widely, widely associated with social media. Articles diagnosing contemporary culture of oversharing proliferate, as I mentioned before. So there's a kind of a problem here between what social media may allow us to do and the kind of currency of social media, which is that we produce content to share on social media, which is about ourselves, about our lives. We perform our own lives in some way. Um, and the relation of now how literature can respond to that problem. So actually it seems like maybe that some of the problem is that literature can't quite work out how it is in relation to social media. Um, but then there's also the kind of distaste that we're talking about for oversharing for this narcissism, which I think for me feels a little bit like dangerously nostalgic, which is basically like, ah, literature before, that was good, that was proper. And now what we have is the bad literature, the icky literature, where women talk about themselves too much and people don't, people, you know, don't, people aren't proper. Novels were better before. Uh, and this is a little bit, you know, make America great again kind of thing. We don't want to be nostalgic for a certain kind of form, which actually I probably argue didn't ever really exist in the first place. As I showed you with Eliot, even George Eliot, the sort of paragon of realist fiction, she was also saying, like, this is a trick, like, I'm playing with you. You know, this is a, an ink. This is like ink on a mirror. And so I think that rather than Clark seeing what she talked about as an alternative version of herself to find fictionalised, I think that maybe this is maybe just another version. So there's multiple versions of ourselves, And that autofiction in some ways is a kind of protection for women writing about themselves. Because the word, there's still the word fiction in the title. We've still got the idea of novel, the novel there. So as if to say, you know, I don't worry, I did make this up. You know, don't worry, I'm not, if, you know, you, ex-boyfriend, I'm not talking about you. Uh, you, husband, I'm not talking about you. It's, it's, it's the assurance of the veracity without the possibility for attack, which we saw with Rachel Cuss can be vehement, super, super vehement. Anyway, so the kind of last thing that I wanted to leave you on is a quote from Lucia Berlin. And I think, um, I don't know if people know Lucia Berlin. Uh, this book of her short stories, Manual for a Cleaning Woman, I think probably we'll look at an extra from one of her stories on Thursday. But she writes about truth in a really interesting way, and I kind of want to leave it on this. So she says, Somehow there must occur the most imperceptible alteration of reality, a transformation, not a distortion of the truth. The story itself becomes the truth, not just for the writer, but for the reader. In any good piece of writing, it is not an identification with the situation, but this recognition of truth that is thrilling. Okay, and so I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you.